You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. January 14th, 1992. Yesterday morning I went to Gia's school. It was her day to celebrate her birthday and bring her family. She was seated in front of the children with me on one side and Jackie and Roman on the other. She had a little bulletin board with family pictures which she talked about. Then it was the children's turn to ask her questions. They asked her her favorite color, pink and gold, her favorite place, McDonald's, her favorite dinosaur, Brontosaurus. I wondered what the children said to Gia about not having a father. In the evening, there was a screening of Hearts of Darkness for the press at the Village Theater in Westwood. When I arrived, four TV news teams rushed forward and did brief interviews with me, Martin Sheen, and the producers. There were press photographers and autograph hunters. I could see Janet Sheen standing to the side where I usually am. It felt strange to be thrust in front of the cameras for something I'd done. We didn't go into the screening. The cast and crew had already seen the film, so we stayed in the lobby and visited. I was glad to see Janet. I have always admired her. She seems to be a happy, devoted wife and mother of four, and although she is artistic herself and paints, she doesn't seem to be frustrated or diminished by devoting herself to her family. Whereas I have an ongoing internal war, a conflict between wanting to be a good wife and mother and also to draw, paint, design, write, and shoot videos. I focus on the family and imagine there will be time for my interests, but there rarely is. I was especially happy to see two of my favorite special effects men, whom I hadn't seen since the Philippines. We talked of the nights we'd spent together huddled in huts in the rain waiting for the signal that the security guards had swept the surrounding jungle and everyone was safely in place so that they could set off the big explosions. There never will be anything like that again. I grew up in a small town and was a teenager during the 1950s. My generation was taught that getting married and having a family was a woman's goal in life. The only working women I met were unmarried school teachers or nurses, and both were considered slightly unfortunate. When I married and had children, I expected to be automatically happy. When I wasn't, I couldn't understand why. Over the years, I went to highly regarded psychiatrists and psychologists, three men and one woman and asked what was wrong with me. I had it all, a loving and successful husband, a big house, healthy children. I was mystified by my depression. Not one of them said, you're a creative person, you need to pursue your creative life, or you'll feel depressed. Sophia's generation is so different. She and her friends understand that family can be parts of a fulfilling life, but they also have career aspirations. It mystifies me how I could have been so culturally brainwashed, so unaware. I am horrified. I suffered and vented my frustration on Francis and our children. Francis couldn't help me. He worked hard to excel in his field and provide well for his family. He couldn't understand why I wasn't totally happy caring for our beautiful home and being a good wife and mother. Recently I wrote down my regrets in extensive detail. I rewrote them over several days and then carefully burned the pages. 
hoping to release their grip, hoping to forgive myself and forgive those who lacked understanding around me. I think it helped. Eleanor Coppola is the author of Notes on the Making of Apocalypse Now. She shot the documentary footage for the film Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse. Her new book is Notes on a Life. Thank you for joining me, Eleanor. Thank you for having me. Eleanor, this is a wonderful book about the tension between being an artist and having a family and trying to do both at the same time. (laughs) Yes, it is. You graduated from art school as a, as a college student back in the 60s, and that must have been kind of wild. And, and you, how did you get into your original gig as a set designer? Well, I was making uh, murals for restaurants and hotels, and that was fr- uh, freelance artwork that I did at that time. And uh, I had some friends from UCLA who were going to work on a low-budget film in Ireland for Francis Coppola, and... Um, I said, gee, that sounds fun. See if you can get me a job. So I paid my way over, and uh, I was paid $100 a week and given room and board to be the assistant to the art director for this uh, film, which was just a very super low-budget affair. And uh, during the course of that time, I met Francis. Once you you met Francis, you quickly married. And I, I... At that point in time, I'm wondering, could you talk about your aspirations? Your family, I think, was was somewhat relieved at that point, weren't they? (laughs) Well, I was um, 26 at the time I got married, and in those days, everyone got married by 21 or 22 max. In fact, I was given a gift of a crocheted tablecloth as the booby prize for the last person to get married or the possible old maid that I was. So everyone was very relieved around me, my friends and my family, that uh, I had, in those days, it was about to catch a husband, (laughs) and that I had caught a husband somehow was uh, deemed a a good thing. As an art student, did you have any idea as to what you wanted to do beyond murals? Did you think that you were going to make your way as an artist, or, or did you have any how did you feel about your your art at that time as as a young woman newly married well i thought i was going to continue on because i met francis working with him and he was on another roger corman film after that and we worked together i was uh did some a set for this film that we were both working on and i thought we would continue working together and i would work on his little films and he'd make these little films and uh, I just I didn't know him well enough. I hadn't met his family. I didn't realize we were together for six months, but uh, in those days, uh, somehow there wasn't as much communication about your background or whatever. But when we got married, I really, I really had the uh, eye-opening discovery that he was a very traditional Italian and that uh, in his family, the men always supported the women, and the women did not work. They took care of the children and supported their husbands' careers. And he thought that's what I would naturally do when I got married, and I thought naturally that I would keep working with him. So it was uh, sort of a shock for both of us to realize that we weren't uh, uh, going to have our expectations met. And and this has lasted throughout your marriage, hasn't it? It's been an ongoing uh, uh, area of conflict, I guess, and I used to see it as really uh, a dark and difficult, and now I kind of see it as a, uh, a s- sort of a good thing that the, uh, 
the push and pull of, of those two forces. When I had time to do my artwork, I just really made use of that time, and I just made it, I just forced it to happen. Sometimes if maybe if you have infinite amount of time, you don't get anything done or whatever. But I just, if I had 20 minutes, I would put one more color of watercolor on that piece I had upstairs I was working on in my room. I always had a room in the house, thank goodness. Uh, I just, I did whatever I could. Of course, I wanted to do more, and I was frustrated that I didn't, wasn't able to do more. But I also, uh, well, I think Tom Waits says it best, and I write that little piece about Tom Waits in the book, if you recall, where he says that uh, art and uh, family want to eat each other, and uh, that, uh, but one isn't good without the other. He said, you need a sink and a faucet. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about it now that it's just, it's, it's a struggle, but the struggle enriches both aspects. When did you start keeping these diaries, and how did you keep them, and how did you keep track of them? Well, I started writing uh, in the Philippines during the making of Apocalypse Now because I had this uh, documentary camera and I was shooting documentary material. And so I wanted to sort of keep my place about where I was or what I thought would be helpful for the documentary. And I wrote my experiences there and then I'd send them to maybe five or six friends. I was very lonely there and then they'd write back They'd read this, whatever my experiences were, and they said, oh, send more, send more. So I got more in the habit of kind of writing these pieces and and sending them to my friends and uh, kind of as a way to communicate while I was gone. And I continued that. And, of course, the project lasted so long and uh, got so complex and took up so much of our lives that I ended up with uh, enough material to... uh, it turned into a book I hadn't expected to, but there it was. And so uh, I did put it together, those notes. And then I kept writing in that way. I, f- I find it something I do, especially if I'm traveling, I'm on a plane, or I'm waiting in the doctor's office or something. I do it uh, in spare moments and in uh, scraps of paper in my purse, or sometimes I have a notebook. But uh, it's just a natural response. I think it's like people take a picture. There are a lot of things that I hear or see that I want to respond to or record, I guess. And uh, you can't take a picture of, of a conversation or uh, or just the light falling in your garden or whatever it is that I'm responding to. So it's a way that I record, I guess, as an observer. And I've kept at it. And then I ended up with these boxes and boxes of notes that I put into the computer and uh, and little by little I realized that what's going to happen to these you know my what when, I, when I'm gone my kids are going to have to burn them or get rid of them or I I just felt like I needed to put them together in a into a book it, it it's a very crafty book it's very well written did you rewrite some of your notes as you did this because the prose is really quite beautiful well, I knew that uh, I'm not a trained writer, and I knew that I didn't really have craft. When I go back and look at the first book, I see all these things that I would never do as a writer now, like lots of places where I say sort of or kind of or it's kind of slangy, kind of just uh, not uh, it's not clean, crafted prose. So I took a, I joined a writing group. And I went for once a week for 
several years, and uh, they are reading your piece and having people correct and, and help you express what you intended. And uh, I learned a lot of just sort of craft things, which I think make this uh, make these notes more well-written than uh, I had in the past. But I don't consider myself a writer. A writer sits down every day at their at their table and they write and they have a craft and a uh, skill they've developed and honed over the years. I, this is more like a conversation, and I, you know, it's not with human, you know, huge big vocabulary words. It's like it's, it's like a snapshot. is sort of my intention, but I want it to be clear and and uh, and not stumble over my bad craftsmanship. So I did try to correct that. As an artist, you're you're you find yourself married to one of the most forceful and biggest names in, in movies. And you yourself are, are, are an artist. You're working on watercolors. And I think what's really interesting in this book is your journey to figure out exactly what where your art lies. And in this book, which is a memoir, you've really taken memory as an art, haven't you? Well, when I thought about how to organize these disparate notes that are, you know, one's in Tokyo and one's in Berlin and one's in... Uh, Thailand and one's in L.A. and one's in my backyard, how to put those together. And I felt like um, I didn't want to... A memoir usually implies that you start when you're a little girl and you go through your life and you grow up and you get to... It wasn't linear to me. It's like the way my mind works, and I think all for everyone, you're in the present and then you remember something in the past or some incident kicks off some other memory. And I wanted to sort of be able to move backward and forward in time and express that uh, way our mind organizes things. And, of course, I needed some help from an editor to kind of get it into a, a form that where the pieces made sense and we moved a few of them around and, and helped me uh, create that form I was striving for. It seems to me that your life, in a sense, has been a journey towards this kind of um, observation as art. I, I'm thinking of the... the the documentary you shot. What what made you decide to shoot that documentary, Hearts of Darkness, to do that footage? Well, that came about in a very offhand manner. Uh, at the time we were in the Philippines, uh, everybody had uh, something they were doing, and I was there as a mom. Everyone was a crew member or something. And after I put my kids in school and I found the dry cleaner, and ta-da, I was starting to really get depressed. I'd left my friends and my artist. I was doing some artist collaborative uh, events and things in San Francisco at that time, and so I was like pulled out of my life. But Francis was right in the thick of his li- his creative life. He was like very excited and stimulated, and I was just uh, sinking into depression, as I say. Well, he got a call from uh, United Artists that they were sending out a documentary team to get some footage of uh, his uh, film preparations and. At that time, they had these little um, five-minute segments on TV to kind of announce upcoming films and things like that. So they were going to send out this team. And he, he was already in trouble right from the start, and he didn't want them to come out and see what was going on. So he said, oh, we'll do it in-house. We'll get somebody here to do it. And then he looked around, and there wasn't anybody available because everybody had a specific job. And he said, oh, okay, Ellie, you could do this. And I, because I'd made... Um, some four-minute art films in the early 70s, just little uh, 
conceptual art things. He said, you do this, you do this. And I never shot my conceptual piece. I'd had some photographer do it. So I took this camera. He got me a newsreel, a small newsreel camera, and uh, I read the directions, and I learned how to uh, change the film, the magazines, load the magazines with the film. And and I just set out. I felt like sooner or later I could get five minutes. I'm going to be out here for a few months. You know, I should be able to get something. And, then, of course, the film went on and on, and they sent me more. Uh, they sent me more Rostock, and I shot more and more and more, and I finally ended up with these 60 hours. But it was just sort of accidental, and I learned every mistake in the camera. I didn't know what I was doing. I, The camera fell off the tripod. The, I got blown over by the helicopters. I... Uh, just like the film, there would be like scratches on the film. I just everything I learned from uh, that hands-on experience. It it seemed to me too that that was was that your first experience doing uh, observation as art. Well, that's an interesting point. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, maybe so. I am a really natural observer. I'm the. That's part of what works between Francis and myself is that I'm the audience, you know, and he's the uh, the entertainer or the <laughs> whatever. Uh, and uh, an entertainer needs an audience, so it kind of works. And uh, so it just did feed into my natural uh, inclination to be an observer. And at the same time, you began writing this book, and mm-hmm. which also grew out of that experience mm-hmm. with, with these notes and mm-hmm. and. It, it seems to me that, as an artist, you you work with memory. You you work with the stock, raw stock of your whole life in this book, and, and it's intra. Some of the details I think are 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 so beautifully wrought and written. It's interesting for me as a reader to get a viewpoint into the life of a family of artists. This must be. This is not a normal family, is it? <laughs> it seems normal to me because it's my everyday life. But um, because Francis and I were both uh, artistically inclined uh, in different ways, for instance, in the kitchen of our house in San Francisco, I always had a table with art supplies for uh, Sophia. You know, when she'd come home from school or any time she was, or even as a toddler, I mean, as soon as she could pick up a pencil, you know, I had some paper in front of her and colors and uh, I, because it was fun for me. It was my pleasure. It was what interested me. And the same for our our boys. And, and Francis was, he recorded their voices and they made little plays. And, and you know, we'd, we'd make little movies of some little family thing. The kids would get dressed up. We had a staircase in the house and we had this sort of drape in front of the staircase. And so the kids would pull the drape and they'd make these little plays and, and uh, come down the staircase. And uh, so there was just a lot... It was just an evolution inside the family of, of we found fun and entertainment among ourselves doing these different things. And then it carried on into, uh, you know, as the years went by and as the kids were teenagers, Francis had a, we call it like a creative, family creative camp or something. And all, we invited our nephews, Jason Schwartzman and and uh, the different kids, and they came and, and um, they... Uh, we, they directed four plays. Jason wrote a play, an original play, at age fourteen, and we, the family members, all played the parts. And uh, uh, and Francis directed a play, and Sophia directed a play, and Roman directed a play, and 
and we had a little night of plays for our neighbors and and uh, so I, I think it's it just depends what if your fam what your family business is and if you uh, do that with your children I think they kind of naturally go there as Sophia says someone said oh you're like your father da, 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 and she said the nut does not fall far from the tree you know <laughs> so it's probably true one of the aspects of this as a memoir is you you take us through an experience that few people want want to live through, which is the death of your son Gio. Mm-hmm. And it, the the writing here is, is is really interesting because when when you learn of it, the writing is rushed and compact and, and, and powerful. Did you write that at the time? And tell me a little bit about the your effort going back now and, and looking at who you were then and who you became, because I, you can see the stages in your writing. Oh. See, you can see it. I can't see it. But um, yes, I did write that at the time, because again, the writing had become sort of my solace, the way I dealt with being alone or um, uh, feelings of isolation. There's nothing more... Uh, completely devastating and taking you back to your own deepest parts of your just as painful and horrific as as it gets and I did write at the time and I think that even has something it's part of the healing process that people can find that as a solution and I wrote this piece at the uh, at the time and I put it at the beginning of the book because it's really the most profound experience I've had in my life and I feel it it reverberates throughout the the rest of the book, so um, I sort of needed to be in the beginning and uh, sort of set uh, the foundation of who I am as a person in my you know, remaining years. Is this also a, a fascinating look at just the everyday average challenges of being a parent and there's a great moment when you realize at one point you're trying to you have to discipline Sophia and she's not happy about that and then later on you come to this point where you realize that you're equals and friends where she's able to treat you you're able to interact you've made that transition I think that's just a natural pattern you know that uh, children have to uh get completely annoyed with you and want to leave home and you have to get completely annoyed with them and so it's okay they leave home otherwise uh, children would never you know it's so great at home you get your laundry done and somebody cooks for you and and uh, and of course you think you're darling children you just want them there every minute but when they get uh, to be irritating teenagers you you kind of get to the point where you'll be glad when they go to college or whatever so I, I think that's part of a very natural process, but that doesn't mean it's not painful to go through and everyone who's had everybody who's every parent who's been rejected by their kids or frustrated with teenagers knows that feeling and it's kind of part of what makes your relationship deep too because you've you've uh, you've had this uh, tense exchange I think in, that, in those years as the child is trying to break away and the parents are trying to come to the terms of letting go. 
as an observer, you seem to find a lot of inspiration in tension. There's a, there's a lot of tension in this book. Between, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hadn't thought about that. Between the family and the creative life. Maybe I'm just rationalizing since it's been in my life and, uh, uh, and I haven't been able to uh, avoid it or succeed in completely subduing it. Uh, I'm trying to take the view that uh, it's probably good. <laughs> that it, it, it brings out other... Uh, it's it's creative in itself of of uh, causing you to grow and uh, evolve just as a person and a parent and an artist and a wife. <laughs> well, one thing I, that observation you make that that fascinates me, and I think this is really true, is that some of the things that an artist will do um, in an offhand manner, just a, as a temporary before they get to the masterpiece, will often turn out to be the 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 masterpiece itself. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I'm thinking of this in terms of when, when you talk about Sophia dashing off uh, Lost in Translation. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I think so. I think that that's uh, true. That's some, something that she did just quickly in between while she was waiting to do the real uh, project that was next for her. And uh, I know myself, I write these books kind of... The, well, I wrote this book very easily because it's not my art. You know, I don't care. I'm not a writer, so I can just kind of dash it off with a kind of relaxedness that I feel much more tense about when I think I'm, when I'm in my studio. I think I'm supposed to be making some art now, and and uh, I'm I'm at a point where I'm, my critical abilities, because I've seen so much great work by real artists, that I'm uh, uh, very critical, self-critical, and it's harder to uh, sort of get my work done because I'm I have a certain kind of uh, you know struggle with it but uh, it is I think if you can just have that uh, naive approach and just go for whatever it is it's just a, more of a spontaneous work you talk about the book spectral evidence and, and, and which is about a, a murder in Napa and you're very uncomfortable with some of the revelations, and you wonder why you continue to observe. Uh, yes, I think as an observer, you always have to question why. You know, why are you observing, and and what uh, point does it step over the edge, or is uh, no longer just objective? You're kind of um, drawn in in some way that uh, uh, you're, that's defying your objectivity. And uh, um, so I don't know. I, I still I wrestle with that, that question of why it's sort of a natural. It's, it is my nature. I'm an observer. If I uh, just go going about my life, I'm, I'm looking at people. I'm looking at things. I, I'm, I, that's my nature. And I try to sort of contain that within where it doesn't sort of go over into the just, I don't know what, uh, purient curiosity or something. <laughs> and you channeled that, that, those observations into several different kinds of art. And I'd like you to tell us about the, the creation of Circle of Memory, which I think is a, a good description of this book as well. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, well, let's see. What do we know? Do I need to begin at the beginning to explain well, what it was? Yeah, yeah, explain, explain because um, it, it's 
surprised me that you were working on a pretty in, impressive and big uh, uh, installation with a lot of really fascinating people. I traveled to Ireland in the mid-'90s with a friend who was writing a book about uh, uh, Irish Cairns, and I didn't even know what a Cairn was, but I learned from her that uh, it was a passage tomb that was about 5,000 years old, and they're scattered all around in the hills of Ireland. And they were uh, used for rituals pertaining to death and renewal, as far as uh, is known. And my uh, friend, Jean McMahon, took me and several others in into one of these tombs. You crawl through this low stone passageway and come out into a, a round room with a high ceiling. And uh, she said, as she explained what they were used for and so forth, she said, well, let's just make a little ceremony ourselves. And so we made a, we put some, she had some candles in her backpack and we put some candles around and then we uh, she said, well, let's say the names of people that we've uh, loved that have died and, and just say their names in this space. So we you know, began with our grandparents and, and then favorite authors and Emily Dickinson. Or, <laughs> we said the different names. And then I finally kind of had the courage to say, you know, my son's name, John Carlo Coppola. And I felt this emotion that I didn't expect to feel. It was something as if I were like sort of connected to all the parents who'd ever, all the mothers who'd ever lost a child down through history or something. Maybe it was just that being in that ancient space. I don't know what it was, but I had a very strong, specific uh, experience. And a few years later, I was uh, building a little studio for myself on the hill behind our, uh, in our back part of our ranch in Napa, where our winery is. And um, I built it out of straw bale. And while uh, when the bales went up, they looked so great. They smelled really good. They had an interesting texture. I was kind of fascinated with how the straw looked before they plastered it over it and then just looked like an adobe building or something. And I thought, uh, I sort of had the idea that what if you tried to build a, uh, a cairn out of straw bale instead of rolling stones up a hill like they had to do in ancient times? What if it was built out of straw? Would it still have that kind of emotional impact was it the technology of the shape that they somehow knew about in ancient times? What was it? And so I got some other artists together, and we um, we developed an idea of how to build it. We built a mock-up of this straw bale space in a barn of the, the passageway in the central uh, round circular uh, um, structure, the high ceiling, and then... Francis needed this barn for a uh, rehearsal space, so I said, well, before we tear this down, let's have him come out and take a look. So um, I had him come, and he was busy, and of course, oh, I've got to go see my wife's thing, and he was I could, he just sort of came in with that attitude, oh, God, let's hurry up and get this over with, and he started down the passageway, and his body just kind of melted. He just kind of relaxed in some way, and he came in and sat down, and uh, just sat in the space, and it was quiet in there and um, semi-dark, and there's this, it's lit from the ceiling, and there's a, a stream, a very thin stream of uh, sand falling from the, the ceiling into the under the floor, and it's kind of building up over the period of the, of the installation. And he sat there, and I looked over at him, and his uh, there was a tear kind of rolling down his cheek from his eyes, and, and then he just said, 
it works. And I knew somehow that there was something about this unexplainable, but nonetheless a fact that it has an emotional quotient, this form and out of this material. And so then um, we get got together and we built uh, this in the Oakland Art Gallery here in the Bay Area. And then it's traveled, but successful. Part of the element is that People are invited afterwards to write a message on a piece of paper and stick it into the straw. And many, many thousands of people put messages in the straw, which were extremely, extremely touching. Just, uh, And we've taken these messages from place to place. So the, all the Oakland ones we took to uh, San Diego, and now this installation has uh, been uh, uh, produced in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and... In last summer, it was in Montpellier, France, and I was interested to see if it would translate. It had a universal quality, if it was just something that we felt here among ourselves. But uh, it was very well received by the, all the international guests, who uh, thousands who came to uh, the uh, installation in Montpellier. And this summer, it's going to Salzburg. Wow. Well, you know. I- as somebody who visits art galleries, it's, it's interesting for me. You, you make this ob- observation that um, we we see art in order to. I think I'll get in this right. Um, we see art in order to be inspired by it to create our own art. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is an interesting observation because it seems that you you've been inspired in a sense by your own art. <laughs> well, when I uh, wrote. That I mean that when we go to uh, a museum or something and we see great art, it makes you want to run home and make your own art. It makes you want to paint and draw or paint whatever, sculpt or whatever you do. It, it's like uh, I think you know if you see a terrific movie, people want to go make a movie or they want to. It, it should really great art makes you want to also participate. I think in some way. And. and uh, this the same also might be said I think for for this book, I found found myself as I was reading the book, starting to as I would put the book down and look around at my own life I'd start to think of it in terms of the way you observed your life, mm. and, and I think that's one of the interesting aspects of this kind of writing is that it it shapes our your visions. And your perspectives help shape our own focus on our own lives. And we see something more in them than we might otherwise see. Well, that would be my greatest desire is that it would uh, communicate in some way that the reader would see their life around them in, uh, in a bigger way. You know, that's what I feel like some artists have done for me. Like I think of like early on when I learned about the work of Klaus Oldenburg, you know, that uh, you know, small objects that are blown up to this enormous size, and he had a project which never got realized, but it was to put um, a big nose on top of the two twin tunnels as you go f- drive from San Francisco to uh, Mill Valley. Those two openings of the were the nostrils of this humongous nose that he did the drawing for, and I never go through that tunnel without thinking of that. It just gives me another a layer of something to s- see when I in my mind's eye and in my experience when I go there. So anything that makes you see more, I think, or feel more or experience more is what art's about. We've been speaking with Eleanor Coppola. 
Her new book is Notes on a Life. Thank you for joining me, Eleanor. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.